As I record this, we're a few weeks away from entering the year 2022. And one of the traditions for nearly all is the concept of a New Year's resolution. I tend not to make too many New Year's resolutions, mainly because I prefer to learn from the past. And if my memory serves, I have rarely achieved what I had resolved to change. Catherine Pulisfer put pen to paper to articulate why so many of our New Year's resolutions tend to fail. She reasons that it is because they are only a statement, or what we wish for in the coming year. There are usually no action plans, no deadlines, no backup plans. Sometimes they are unrealistic resolutions with no other thought or plans besides the statement. Perhaps it was this lack of planning that made Filipino President Ferdinand Marcos muse that it was easier to run a revolution than a government. That's a sentiment that Fidel Castro would likely have agreed with. Having risen to power as the oppositional leader to an openly corrupt dictatorship, Fidel Castro promised his people a socialist utopia. Far from a paradise, Castro's Cuba wound up impoverished. Its people lacked progress, food, and rights. The ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were all quickly extinguished in Fidel's misguided quest for social justice. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives to assist in the teaching of history. This episode is about the life and legacy of Cuba's most infamous dictator, Fidel Castro. We examine his policies. After 1962, Castro was free to remake the country according to his own personal set of blueprints. He believed that he had the action plans, deadlines, as well as the backup plans necessary to succeed regarding his resolutions for Cuba. The most common resolution is to work out more in order to get healthy, but 80% of those that sign up after the New Year's will have quit within five months. But in January, those gyms' treadmills are as busy as they can be. Likewise, Cuba immediately achieved a number of notable successes, which were then followed by intense periods of violent crackdowns. At least the gyms don't respond in that way when you stop showing up. First up on Fidel's task list was the remaking of the economy something that would prove to be tremendously difficult with an economic embargo hovering over their heads. The new economy of Cuba would be centrally planned with an extreme emphasis on moral incentives and collective self-sacrifice. All workers in the Cuban economy would receive equal pay, including zero additional pay for any overtime, which was viewed as an obligatory tax there was no monetary distinction based upon either the quality or difficulty of one's profession. The inherent sacrifices asked of the Cuban people were driven by propaganda related to machismo, a Latin sense of male pride. The propaganda referred to the socialist revolution as creating a new man, one whom volunteered and sacrificed so that his people were better off. It was the duty of the new man to provide the extra work for others. 
Che explained in 1965, quote, we are doing everything possible to give labor this new status of social duty and to link it on the one side with the development of a technology which will create the conditions for greater freedom. And on the other side, with voluntary work based on a Marxist appreciation for the fact that man truly reaches a full human condition when he produces without being driven by the physical need to sell his labor as a commodity. This is not a matter of how many pounds of meat one might be able to eat, nor of how many times a year someone can go to the beach, nor how many ornaments from abroad you might be able to buy with present salaries. What is really involved is that the individual feels more complete, with much more internal richness and much more responsibility." End quote. Believing in Barney Stinson's philosophy that new is always better, Castro's regime switched to a new national currency. They seized personal savings from banks, and then they abolished housing rents, which came as quite a shock to those who had previously owned the apartment buildings. By 1963, the state owned 70% of all land on the island. As was the case in all instances of state collectivization, productivity plummeted. Moral incentives failed to do what overtime pay had previously succeeded at. Farmers were forced to sell their products to the state at what would have been below market prices. The problems compounded quickly, as these workers quickly lost motivation to produce more than what was legally required of them, and sugar production levels soon declined. In 1968, the Revolutionary Offensive finished off capitalism on the island once and for all, as the state seized all remaining stores, restaurants, grocers, service shops, and street vendors. It is this government ownership that explains why the American embargo involves a blanket ban against travel. An American in Cuba that stays at a hotel, pays for a private excursion, and eats at a local Cuban restaurant would have directly aided the Cuban communist state three times. I am pretty sure that I resolved to travel to Cuba after Obama ended the travel ban. Unfortunately, I miss that resolution and find it once again impossible to visit. By 1968, Che's calls for the new men of Cuba to step up to support the state were being met with high levels of absenteeism. It was a situation akin to the Soviet Union, where it was said that they pretend to pay and we pretend to work. Revolutions are not cheap. In 1970, a number of loans from the Soviet Union came due, and Fidel believed that the only way to pay them off would be to shatter the island's record for sugar production. It was similar to what Mao Zedong referred to as the Great Leap Forward. Cuba's version didn't result in tens of millions starving to death, but it wasn't very successful either. The idea was sound. Selling the surplus sugar would allow Cuba to pay off the debt to Russia. After that, the record sales could be reinvested into new industries that would allow for the economic diversification that the island desperately needed. Comrade Fidel jumped on the socialist trend of proclaiming his goal with a rhetorical flourish 
1970 was proclaimed as the year of the 10 million. The New Year's resolution was to produce in excess of 10 million tons of sugar. His line of credit was up, so without the ability to fail this time, Fidel went from volunteerism to the militarization of labor. Those in line to exit via emigration from the island were forcibly put to work. And borrowing from Stalin's playbook, all criminals were forced out from behind bars for some forced labor in the fields. Proving that the government didn't trust the new man to stay on the treadmill of progress, the military continuously guarded the sugar factories to motivate the workers to put in their best effort. Castro himself joined the propaganda campaign and was seen cutting cane in street posters around the country. Bars and theaters were closed so as to prevent distraction. They even canceled both Christmas and New Year celebrations to ensure that no one missed two productive workdays. Many of those that participated did so with enthusiasm, as they believed that they were truly building the foundation for the country's future. Or at least they believed that when they began. But by their first return trip home from the fields, they had serious doubts. One 14-year-old boy described his experience. Despite never working in a sugarcane field, he was put on a train with a preferred route so that it only took one day to get to the field. He was handed a machete and a short lesson of what to do. Lacking any experience, he proceeded to cut himself with the machete early in the day. After a grueling full day of work, he was put back on the train and given a bag of oranges to eat. The train returning home was denied the preferred route and therefore took three days for the return voyage. The bag of oranges only lasted for the first of those three days. He and his fellow countrymen returned home tired and hungry. Without yet knowing the outcome of the harvest, they also didn't know whether their suffering was worth the effort. John F. Kennedy began his new year in 1961 at his inauguration, telling his fellow Americans to ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. It was a phrase that Castro appropriated in order to demand that every Cuban sacrifice for the good of their nation so that that nation would be able to survive. To such an end, schools were closed to free up workers, and other industries became paralyzed as all of their workers were forced to aid in the nationwide sugar campaign. For all of this, the Cuban year of 10 million only produced 8.5 million tons of sugar. It was still a record, but fell short of the overall goal. The campaign's failure had a negative effect on the Cuban psyche. Castro was forced to admit that it was a failure, but even he didn't realize how long Cuba would pay for his over-eager silver bullet program. Agricultural machines had been overused during the year and would begin to break down over the next decade. The expected profit had been earmarked for new ones but the program's failure meant that replacements would never arrive. 
agricultural production of crops other than sugar had suffered, and they would have to import food just to survive. Morale among the people was at an all-time low, and the military felt diminished for having to use their machetes for cane harvesting rather than for protecting their nation. The whole campaign was such an obvious failure that Fidel was forced to offer to resign, but never did. And he was compelled to become more reliant on the Soviet Union to prop up his regime economically. He survived this fiasco, but there would be more. The website CubanEconomy.com ranks the year of 10 million as only the ninth worst of Fidel's 10 worst economic fiascos. The end of 1970's Year of 10 Million meant that Cuba was ready to make a new New Year's resolution. This time, the state relaxed command of the economy and allowed farmers markets to return. State-owned companies were given autonomy to make daily decisions and overtime pay was reinstated. But the damage had been done. As recession hit the island throughout the 1970s, another 125,000 Cubans abandoned the island to emigrate to the United States in what became known as the 1980 Marial Exodus. With the market reforms failing to solve all of his problems, Fidel returned to his centralization instincts. Remember that in his youth, he was a true believer who read the works of Marx, Engels, and Lenin. Even though the concepts hadn't worked yet, didn't mean that they wouldn't ever succeed. The 1986 rectification campaign would again ban the private markets as well as the workers' overtime bonus pay. Collectivization began again, and by the end of the campaign, only 2% of farmers were independent of the state. Union rights were eliminated as labor became mandatory. The results predictably were the same as before. Productivity fell, absenteeism rose, and the available supply of commodities decreased, which in turn increased prices. Few people offer up a resolution to make less money for doing the same amount of work. It got even worse in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. Since the year of 10 million, the Russians had been propping up the Castro regime. Castro referred to the dissolution of socialist states as the most unfavorable international economic juncture ever faced by the Cuban economy in the entire history of the revolution. Everything that the USSR had furnished to Cuba was hastily removed. Technicians working on projects dropped their tools and returned home. Subsidized goods, including oil, saw gigantic overnight price increases. Foreign loans became impossible for the island, as the winners of the Cold War still maintained their economic embargo over the island. Anyone willing to help the Cubans would have to face the wrath of the Americans. Rationing was introduced for this special period, as Cuba acted as if it were in a state of war. There were limits on energy usage at home, and Cubans dealt with prolonged blackouts. The challenge of this period once again forced Fidel to consider market reforms. Strapped for cash, foreign businesses were allowed to operate in the areas of tourism, mining, and energy. 
Cubans could buy and sell U.S. dollars in a play to encourage remittances from the states. State-owned farms gave way to worker-managed cooperatives which boosted production and lowered prices. The U.S. State Department discloses that these market-based reforms are still what props up Cuba today. They reveal that in the mid-1990s, tourism surpassed sugar as the primary source of foreign exchange, with a top official identifying it as the heart of the Cuban economy. In 2001, 1.7 million tourists visited Cuba in 2003, generating more than $2.1 billion in gross revenue for the state. The majority of tourists came from Canada and the European Union, who love journeying to Cuba for the sheer fact that there are no annoying Americans at any of the resorts. We have always resolved to travel more, but rarely have we attempted to travel better. Tragically, Cuban citizens aren't able to enjoy the direct benefits that come from being a tourist magnet, as they aren't allowed to stay at any of the foreign hotels or access their services. This includes the high-quality internet and beaches that come with the island's top hotels. The Cuban tourism industry is designed purely to bring money in, not to reshuffle it around the island. Keep in mind that the government owns each and every service provided on the island. Giving more to charity is another common New Year's resolution. The State Department tells us that the Cuban government gains between $600 million to $1 billion per year via remittances. Although the money that passes through the embargo in this way is not allowed to be transferred to the state, the government captures this remittance money by the fact that Cubans shop in state-run dollar stores, which sell food, household, and clothing items at a high markup, averaging more than 240% of the face value of the items. Next, joint investments from foreign businesses help to keep Cuba above water. Typically, the government retains half of the business's ownership equity as well as all of the managing contracts. In 1982, when the first joint ventures were created on the island, 397 of the original 540 are still maintained today. They serve to keep the economy afloat. The Brookings Institute performed an analysis of the 2014 168-page Portfolio of Opportunities for Foreign Investment. The document hoped to lure in $8 billion of outside investment. Brookings' conclusion is that Cuba is in a state of desperation. This is largely due to the fact that Cuba is spending way too much on its scarce foreign exchange resources on food imports which is a genuine food security crisis. And tourism offers the only ready medium-term option for rapid growth in badly needed hard currency earnings. In other words, in order to build new hotels and golf courses, they need outside cash. Energy production was another sector that Fidel appeared to have been clueless about. His Revolution Energetica replaced their large-scale thermal electric plants with an absurd amount of small generators that were dispersed around the island. He incorrectly believed that the closeness to the destination would increase efficiency and prevent region-wide blackouts and rationing. 
No other nation in the world tried this method, which goes to show you that it wasn't ever likely to succeed. The policy ignored the economic principle of large-scale electricity generation that also allows for the synchronization of supply to properly deal with minute-by-minute -minute changes to the grid. It also created mass confusion as to the logistical control of the grid system and required expensive imported diesel fuel rather than lower-cost heavy oil. Even worse, the diesel fuel had to be constantly transported by truck to each generator around the island, and all of those 1950 Soviet-designed trucks ran inefficiently on the same fuel that they were tasked with delivering. Fidel Castro had more success regarding social policies, foremost of which was in the realm of education. Pre-revolution, it was rare to be able to receive a decent education if you belonged to the island's rural poor. Their illiteracy rate was one of the highest in Latin America. Only 24% of children under the age of 10 were able to read and write. Castro was one of the privileged few who was able to benefit from a private Jesuit education. Because of what he learned, he had gone on to achieve an advanced collegiate degree. Education was clearly important to Fidel. While in prison, as well as while conducting their guerrilla campaign, his men freely taught children and adults how to read and write. Always in favor of a grand proclamation, he declared 1961 as the year of education. Always attracted to unrealistic New Year's goals, he set the bar at eradicating illiteracy by the end of the year. He pushed a slogan that warms my own heart. If you do not know, learn. If you know, teach. Military barracks were turned into makeshift schools, while new ones were being constructed in rural areas. More schools were built during this period alone than had been built throughout the prior 58 years of Cuban history. 271,000 citizens were enlisted as teachers, oftentimes as literacy volunteers, who were expected to go and teach people in their homes during their free time. Like Fidel, they dressed in an olive green uniform as they waged their war against ignorance. Although it didn't meet its lofty goal, by the end of 1962, illiteracy had dropped to an astounding 4% of the population. Communists are supposed to believe in social justice in order to uplift their fellow man. Communist dictators attempt to uplift their fellow man so that they remain in power. And failing that, they uplift their soldiers in order to beat down their fellow man. Like all things, Castro's education policy would further his own personal goals. Although his people now had the ability to read, their literary choices to fulfill their resolutions to read more were very much limited. Literature that painted Marxism in the best light and capitalism in the worst dominated state-created reading lists. Fidel adopted new textbooks that were focused on teaching the history of the revolution, making heroes out of the men who had won. Castro explained that the task of the schools is the ideological formation of revolutionaries, 
and then, by means of the revolutionaries, the ideological formation of the rest of the people. In other words, Fidel and his cronies were transformed into living saints. Students learned about the importance of self-sacrifice for the good of the state, as well as the hardships that the poor endured on a daily basis. Cuban Luis Garcia details the new schooling philosophy by sharing with us that, quote, It didn't take me long to discover that despite my initial reservations, I was going to enjoy school after all. We sit at our uncomfortable wooden desks learning to recite an alphabet where the F is for Fidel, the R is for rifles, and the Y is for the Yankees. Learning about Fidel and rifles and why we should hate the Americans can sometimes take up a fair amount of the school day, even in primary school. As we get older, more and more time is taken out for what my parents describe with growing alarm as indoctrination, end quote. The first wave of mass migration was referred to as the Peter Pan flights, as parents preferred their children to be exiled rather than indoctrinated. Although education was universal, it wasn't equal. The children of party leaders were granted access to elite private schools, such as the Centro Vocacional de Lenin. These schools focused on vocational skills the Cubans would need to help their own nation. In fact, Fidel forecasted in 1968 that there would be no need for any universities on the island. This was because the primary schools did enough to prepare the students for life as a worker. Their industries would be their finishing schools. If education served to elevate the party leaders to sainthood, what happened to the actual saints? After all, pre-revolution Cuba was 90% Catholic. Fidel himself had gone to a school led by the Jesuit Holy Order. Religious leaders hesitantly supported the rebellion from the sidelines, seeing it as an opportunity to further their own social justice goals. Like most dictators, however, Fidel Castro quickly tired of the competition. Bishops criticized the policies of the revolution, particularly its harsh approach towards dissidents. He ranted at the churches to stay out of politics and went so far as to eliminate religious schools, claiming that the only religious education could occur inside of the confines of the churches themselves. His goal was to impose a form of internal exile, where churches became invisible silent groups with limited or no influence among the population. The policy became official when the 1976 Constitution was passed, after the first elections held since 1958, during which only party members were allowed to run. The Constitution states that, quote, it is illegal and punishable by law to oppose one's faith or religious beliefs to the revolution, education, or the fulfillment of the duty to work defend the homeland with arms, show reverence for its symbols and other duties established by the Constitution. In short, it was illegal to worship anything with more reverence than the revolutionary state and its god, Fidel Castro. Officially, Cuba became listed as an atheist state until 1992, when an amendment to the Constitution turned it into a secular state. 
Castro thought that he was a worthy substitute for worship. In 1998, he claimed, quote, if instead of being born and elaborating his ideas when he did, Christ had been born in these times, you can be sure, or at least I am, that his preaching would not have differed much from the ideas or the preaching that we revolutionaries of today try to bring the world, end quote. At another point, he proved he was more than willing to speak on faith telling others that, at times I've referred to Christ's miracles and have said, well, Christ multiplied the fish and the loaves to feed the population. That is precisely what we want to do with the revolution and socialism. Although he believed in the church's mission, he felt that historically the church had been used for centuries as a tool for domination, exploitation, and oppression. Thus, he replaced Jesus with himself and God's church with the state. The dislike was mutual, as the Catholic Church excommunicated all communists in its 1949 decree against communism. In 1962, the Vatican publicly confirmed that Fidel was among those to be denied the sacraments, as well as access to the heavenly gates. Churches, however, were allowed to continue to operate, so that resolution wasn't impossible on the island, but they were closely monitored by government officials. The island went from 90% Roman Catholic to the lowly number of 27% adherents today. 44% of the population remains non-religious, while 13% have adopted Santeria, a unique island mix of West African, Catholic, and indigenous beliefs. In 1961, 130 Catholic priests were exiled and hundreds more migrated out of the country. 95% of the Cuban Jewish population abandoned the island, unwilling to live beneath an authoritarian regime that was opposed to religion. Despite all of this, the church persevered, managing to survive by not speaking out against the government. Their opening arrived in 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union. Recognizing how painful economic austerity was going to be for its people, Fidel's government relaxed prohibitions on the church, even allowing Catholics the right to become Communist Party members for the first time. The decision was in response to what they felt was an existential crisis that threatened the state's legitimacy. Thirty years in power had not yet brought Cuba any closer to the utopia that had been promised. Now they were being told to expect even more hardships, while they continued to wait for the results that they had been promised. 9,000 miles into the 10,000-mile journey came the realization that they remained another 10,000 miles away. And Fidel Castro had the audacity to ask them to keep focusing on one step at a time. By working with the church, the state would be able to count on that institution's credibility to keep the people content on that journey. It worked, and Fidel Castro would go on to meet with three consecutive popes, including a 1998 visit to Cuba by Pope John Paul II who would go on to directly criticize the role that the U.S. embargo was playing in harming Cuba's people. The visit was one of the biggest propaganda victories in the history of Castro's communist Cuba.
The Cuban people did suffer, yet simultaneously benefited from one of the best healthcare systems in Latin America. The Commonwealth Fund tells us that when it comes to healthcare, Cuba is a success story with few parallels. Castro created a world-class system of healthcare that was in line with communist ideals and entirely free. Since the 1959 revolution, the infant mortality rate fell from 37.3 to only 4.3 per 1,000 live births, a number that is better than America's own rate of 5.8 per 1,000. Their life expectancy is also in line with the U.S. Remarkably, these gains occurred during the Special Period, when Cuba's economy was in a state of freefall. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the average Cuban shed 25 to 35 pounds due to nationwide food shortages. Not quite the right way to lose those extra winter pounds. During this period, healthcare kept receiving the same amount of resources as it had before the Russian rug was pulled out from under Fidel's feet. 10% of the Cuban GDP is spent on healthcare. For comparison's sake, U.S. spending has fluctuated, with 6% of the GDP going to the health industries in 1960, to 18% today. At the local level, family physicians are required to visit every patient in their home at least once a year. At the national level, the island boasts 13 medical schools that send 50,000 health professionals abroad annually to provide care in developing countries. Today, the Cuban government charges for their services, bringing in a powerful source of revenue to the island. Their biomedical research wing is one of the most valued in the world. In the 60s, the communist government mandated universal vaccination and quickly eradicated polio, tetanus, diphtheria, and rubella. When the AIDS outbreak occurred in the 80s and 90s, the authoritarian government instituted mandatory testing for its citizens. Alas, rather than educating these individuals about how to live with the disease, the government isolated them from the population against their will. Today, Cuba has the lowest HIV prevalence in the Americas. Still, there are critics who point out that much of Cuba's health data is still under state control and not subject to independent verification. When Barack Obama temporarily lowered most of the restrictions put in place by the embargo, the U.S. was able to tour some of the facilities and engage with Cuban doctors for the first time. One of the most exciting outcomes for U.S. scientists was the opportunity to discuss Simivax, a treatment for prostate cancer which is designed to starve cancers of growth factors rather than attacking the tumor after it has already grown. Bugan Turkan, Chief International Officer of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, said that combining the U.S. and Cuban scientific worlds could lead to a quantum leap of breakthroughs. Those breakthroughs will have to wait, however. President Donald Trump reinstituted the embargo when he sat behind the Oval Office, and one year into his term, President Biden hasn't returned to the Cuban policy that was in place when he was Obama's vice president. That policy is in place in part because of how the Castro regime treated its political opponents. 
Under the Castro regime, the Cuban government refused to recognize the legitimacy of Cuban human rights organizations, alternative political parties, independent labor unions, or a free press. They denied international monitors, including the Red Cross and Human Rights Watch. The picture that we have of Cuba is largely painted by those that got away, individuals that Cuba can claim to have an axe to grind, and therefore their testimony is considered questionable at best. Without international monitors, it is a case of he said, she said. Or in Cuba's case, millions say, Fidel say. Fidel Castro, the man whose journey to power began in a courtroom arguing against the illegality of the cancellation of a free election, never hosted a free and fair election to confirm his own popularity. He banned political parties and the free press. Historian Derek Liebert recalls that Fidel ordered machine gun executions of several thousand opponents in what his lieutenant Antonio Jimenez termed the year of the firing squad. Show trials were a favorite export for Fidel from Stalin's Soviet Union. These trials were set up with a judge that was in on the deal, witnesses who were paid to tell the story that the government wanted, and sentences that had already been determined outside of the courtroom. Enemies of the state were easy to find. Fidel set up the Comités de Defensa de la Revolución, Operating as the HR department for every firm, their primary role was to report any and all counter-revolutionary activity. They were in every workplace, street block, and even inside residential buildings. Like the Spanish Inquisition, citizens were required to report on each other in fear of themselves being reported by their own enemies. The committee employed 800,000 members in order to surveil the entire population. That was one-third of the Cuban population in 1963. Think about it, one-third of their population were engaged in a job that produced zero economic gain for the island. After being sentenced in a show trial, individuals were sent to labor camps, another of Stalin's favorite re-education methods. The camps were labeled UMAP, which is a Spanish acronym for Military Units in Aid of Production. Among those imprisoned were homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, adherents to the Seventh-day Adventurists, as well as clergy members from Christian churches. Barnett Kirchner spent three years in a UMAP camp. She describes the food in great detail, telling us that breakfast consisted of peas that were burned into water. Lunch and dinner were grits, which visibly had weevils in it. Prisoners were sent home for bi-monthly visits so they could wash their prison uniforms, as the camps had absolutely no soap to spare. These camps were closed in 1968 amid growing international pressure. Instead of freeing individuals, it just pushed the torture behind the walls of the prisons. Armando Valadares was one of those unfortunate enough to run afoul of the Castro regime. He spent 22 years in Cuban prisons after becoming an outspoken opponent of the regime. He published his harrowing tale in 1986, telling us that Fidel believed that torture was a necessary evil, for it annihilates the enemy. Armando tells us that prisoners were regularly beaten, shot, and occasionally killed. 
They were kept in drawer cells, specially constructed units that resembled closed coffins. Even when they weren't in the drawers, darkness was ever-present in their lives. In fact, they were regularly ensconced in darkness as a punishment, during which buckets of urine and feces would be dumped on the heads of the prisoners. Rats and roaches were ever-present, and sleep was next to impossible. At other times, the darkness would be welcomed, as some prisoner cells contained fluorescent lights turned on 24 hours a day. Armando became partially paralyzed due to the malnutrition that he faced while in prison. This is all sharply in contrast to Fidel's own prison experience for rebelling against the Moncado barracks. Castro described that experience as involving many pleasant hours spent in an airy yard, with good dinners, including Italian chocolate for dessert, as well as two baths a day. In one letter from his prison stay, he added that they provided him with plenty of water, electric lights, food, clean clothes, and all for free. They're going to make me think I'm on vacation, he wrote. Arbitrary arrest and detention, beating, acts of repudiation, and government surveillance all remain intact in the Cuban state of today. Gay men were particularly targeted for imprisonment and assault. Castro sat down for an interview on the subject in 1965, stating, quote, We would never come to believe that a homosexual could embody the conditions and requirements of conduct that would enable us to consider him a true revolutionary, a true communist militant. A deviation of that nature clashes with the concept we have of what a militant communist should be. In that quote, we have a clear picture of machismo getting in the way of equality. According to machismo, men have the power, and they could proclaim their macho-ness only by having sex with as many women as possible. This is a classic contradiction in our world today, where women are considered better if they're pure, but men can only be awesome manly men if they sleep with a plethora of women. Thus, in order for the man to be successful in this paradigm, women must fail. Gay men threatened all this macho-ness, however, and they had the physical strength to make other men aware of the dangers of sexual assault, which was ever-present for a woman living under the world of machismo. Heck, if you stop and listen to women in all nations of the world, you will quickly find out that it's a concern that we all have an ethical obligation to reduce. The first ever protest for gay rights in the United States was held by the Machinine Society in front of both the United Nations building and the White House to protest the internment of gay men in Cuban concentration camps. The two-day-long demonstration occurred four years before the significantly more famous Stonewall riots. Ronaldo Arenas, an openly gay Cuban man, wrote his memoir entitled Before Night Falls. In it, he tells us that prison was a sweltering place without a bathroom. Gays were not treated like human beings, they were treated like beasts. They were the last ones to come out for meals so that others saw them walk by, and the most insignificant incident involving them was an excuse to beat them mercilessly.
In 2010, Fidel Castro took responsibility for this deadly discrimination, telling a Mexican newspaper reporter that if someone is responsible, it's me. But even there, he skirted his own responsibility, explaining that at the time, we were being sabotaged systematically. There were armed attacks against us. We had too many problems. Keeping one step ahead of the CIA, which was paying so many traitors, was not easy. Not exactly a strong justification for locking Cubans up for merely stepping out of the closet. Twenty years after the revolution, in 1979, homosexuality was finally decriminalized in Cuba. One of the few groups that emerged in a marginally better position during the Castro years were women. Although Cuba remained a traditional society, women had been given the right to vote as early as 1934, and the 1940 Constitution had granted them equality before the law. This included while they were at work. However, few women in the middle and upper classes preferred to work, as they regularly faced daily discrimination at the hands of their male co-workers. Fidel changed this, partly out of necessity. In order to achieve rapid economic modernization, the Cuban leader would have to expeditiously increase his workforce. Women who were staying at home were the most obvious solution. So like Stalin and Mao, Fidel quickly got women into the workforce by any means necessary. Daycare centers were created by the state in order to free women from the responsibility of childcare, and they entered the market as agricultural workers, as well as construction workers, and IT officials. Women weren't removed from their traditional role, however, as Fidel encouraged women to be more efficient workers so that they could cut sugarcane in the day and still have a warm dinner on their husband's plate in the evening. To his credit, he recognized the unfair burden that this put on the fairer sex, and in 1970 passed the new Family Code which stipulated equality of the two sexes at home and at work. Men were now required to share in the household duties and the education of their children. Castro said in 1974 that the day must come when we have a party of men and women, and a leadership of men and women, and a state of men and women, and a government of men and women. He regularly referred to his goals for women's rights as a revolution within a revolution. On paper, it's been a success. 49% of Cuba's congressional seats are held by women. That puts them as the third best nation in the world for female political representation. The U.S. ranks 66 in that category, with only 20% of its Congress in women's capable hands. Georgetown Berkeley Center claims that these numbers are beyond empty, however, writing that, quote, the machismo mentality ensures that men receive the upper hand. All you have to do is walk down the street to see machismo at work. Catcalls or piropos and other forms of non-physical sexual harassment are unavoidable for women, even on a five-minute walk. This culture of machismo is deeply embedded in Cuban society and indicative of deeper institutionalized gender inequalities as well. The Berkeley Center continues, In actuality, employed women in Cuba do not hold positions of power, either political or monetary. 
The Cuban Congress, although elected by the people, is not the political body that truly calls the shots. The Cuban Communist Party, only about 7% of which is made up of women, holds true political power. Still, there are women that have held the revolution's spotlight. Velma Espin was on the Grandma as it sailed from Mexico with 81 other revolutionaries. After the revolution, she went on to found the Cuban Women's Federation. She was a chemical engineer and the leader of the revolutionary movement in the eastern provinces. She was also a feminist in charge of advancing women's rights, gender equalization, and reproductive health rights. In 2008, Cuban women accounted for 65% of total university graduates, something that Cuban scholars refer to as the feminization of education and the professions. Still, these high-end jobs, including doctors, aren't paid on the same scale as they are in the West, meaning that even these achievements are more hollow than we would believe at first pass. Machismo remained strong in this part of the world, and Fidel embodied the worst of it. Documentary filmmaker Ian Halperin claims that Fidel Castro slept with 35,000 women over his 82 years of life. That goes on to nearly double the sickening claim of former NBA superstar Wilt Chamberlain, who previously claimed to have slept with 20,000 women. Halperin uses insider staff interviews to report that the dictator would sleep with at least two different women per day and would send his bodyguards out to find the most beautiful ones for his pleasure. Still to this day, Cuban women who aren't quite sure of who the father of their child is will refer to the baby as her Fidelito, or Little Fidel. The legacy of Fidel Castro continues to this very day. His brother guaranteed his place in the island's history, thus making sure that he would not be Khrushcheved by his successor. Current leader of the party, Diaz-Canel, continues to provide cover for both Castro brothers. Cuba remains a land that is bitterly divided. The tourist sector brings individuals from enlightened liberal democracies, but they rarely get to see the other Cuba. Safe in their beachside hotels, the Cuban experience is carefully crafted and brought to them. This lack of people-to-people -people diplomacy has hindered the advancement of democratic ideals. The embargo, according to Human Rights Watch, didn't sideline Cuba from the world as it intended. Rather, it sidelined the U.S. from intervening in Cuba. The international organization writes that for decades, Fidel Castro was the chief beneficiary of a misguided U.S. policy that allowed him to play the victim and discouraged other governments from condemning his repressive policies. Today, Cuba continues to languish as a developing nation. With a population of 11.2 million, it remains smaller than Ohio and its GDP ranks 137th in the world right behind Mongolia and Albania. The average Cuban earns $20 a month. Yet every single day, Castro supporters can point to its existence as a communist nation as victory. It may not yet be a utopia, but it remains in a state of coexistence just 90 miles away from the great enemy of communism. 
Castro survived where the Soviet Union didn't. His reign would outlast 10 US presidents. He nearly pushed the world's two superpowers to a thermonuclear war. His image is still utilized in developing countries as an example of what is achievable through belief and guerrilla warfare. He met three popes and became an international celebrity. His troops deployed to Angola, Ethiopia, Libya, Algeria, and Mozambique in order to support communist proxy wars. His doctors went everywhere else. Fidel Castro never actually achieved his new regime resolutions, but he also didn't give up in February on his new gym membership. Throughout all of his reign, he remained single-minded in his hatred for the U.S. And that serves to remind us that despite his crimes being confined to his island, Fidel Castro was a vile and unholy dictator. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, he reportedly begged to be the first to carry out a nuclear strike against America. Although he never achieved a mass casualty nuclear event, the killing of his people never ceased. University of Hawaii professor R.J. Rummel estimates that the Castro regime killed between 35,000 and 141,000 of his country's men in his attempt at ending the Batista-led regime of terror and dictatorship. The repression continues. The Cuba that Castro built currently ranks 178th out of 180 nations on the Heritage Foundation's Economic Freedom Index. And the Freedom House's Political Freedom Index has them ranked among the least free places on Earth. While Cuba boasts a top 60 life expectancy and a top 10 literacy rate, the suicide rate among their people tripled during Fidel's reign. The Adam Smith Institute points out that when Castro seized the mantle of leadership, the GDP per capita was $2,067 a year. That's about the same size as the per capita GDPs of Ecuador, Jamaica, and Panama in 1959. By 1999, Cuba had hardly advanced at all, rising to $2,307. That's a 1.1% increase in the GDP over 40 years. In the same time span, peer nations such as Ecuador saw a 92% increase in their GDP. Jamaica experienced a 44% increase and Panama had a 141% increase. Castro once mused that he didn't think that a man should live beyond the age when he begins to deteriorate, when the flame that lighted the brightest moment of his life has weakened. For Fidel, the revolution was that high point. His arrival to Havana to the thunderous applause of people who welcomed him as a savior. His brightness weakened almost immediately, dimming the prospects for the entire island, sometimes to the point of forced blackouts and nights without any food on their tables. The pain was intense and immediate, and the people suffered as Castro's Cuba deteriorated. But Fidel's rule continued marching steadily forward, continually offering apologies for past mistakes, while blaming the vast majority of it on his arch enemy, the United States.
The world and the Cuban people would have likely been far better off if Fidel the man had not lived beyond that 1961 high point in his life. Clearly, there are a lot of things that Cuba needs to continue to work on. But as Oscar Wilde said, good resolutions are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. Cuba is going to have to look to different institutions in order to improve their lot in life. Perhaps 2022 will be the year that the tide turns. Perhaps not, however. Perhaps it is the year that Fidel is proven correct that history would one day absolve him. He fought for 60 years, promising victory to attain that absolvement. He knew that it would also be a battle. His entire life turned out to be a war that he would come to know intimately, writing that a revolution is a struggle to the death between the future and the past. Today, his revolution carries on without him, despite having little to show for the suffering of Cuba's people. <laughs>